Welcome to part two of The Road to L.A. 1984, our multi-episode retrospective on the 40th anniversary of a seminal moment in a golden era of marathoning. We're telling the behind-the-scenes account of the athletes, the training, and the build-up races. This week, we take you to Boston, 1983, a pinnacle of American marathon dominance. Forty years later, Here's the story of Boston 1983 on mile 150 of Seconds Flat. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Aging Soviet General Secretary Leonid Brezhnev faced a critical flashpoint in his rule in December 1979. Confronting his decaying health, domestic economic stagnation, and concerns about a loosening grip over Central Asia, Brezhnev weighed intervention into the Afghan Civil War. A year earlier, a successful communist revolution there overthrew the ruling autocracy. But backlash against the communists' authoritarianism had erupted into violent conflict. Told by the KGB that Afghanistan could be taken and stabilized in just weeks, Brezhnev authorized military action. Under the guise of supporting their puppet regime, Soviet tanks rolled across the Afghanistan border on Christmas Eve, 1979. Christmas Eve in Boston that year was unseasonably warm. The hometown Celtics guided by transcendent rookie Larry Bird, and on their way to the greatest single-season turnaround in NBA history, had their seven-game winning streak snapped the night before by Dr. J's Philadelphia 76ers. Another rookie Hall of Famer-to-be shared the Boston Garden with Bird. On the ice, Bruins' young gun defenseman Ray Bork was headed toward the first of his 19 NHL All-Star Game appearances. While the Celtics fell to the Sixers, Bork assisted on two goals in a road win over fellow original six club, the New York Rangers. The Boston weather felt more apropos of the Red Sox annual Patriots Day home baseball game, which coincides with the Boston Marathon. And in 1979, both iconic Boston entities celebrated historic milestones. Red Sox legend Carl Yastrzemski pulled a fastball past Yankees second baseman Willie Randolph and into right field at Fenway Park, joining Major League Baseball's 3,000-hit club. And the Greater Boston Track Club placed four runners in the top ten of the Boston Marathon. Champion Bill Rogers, along with Bob Hodge, Randy Thomas, and Dick Mahoney. Imagine four men from the same American track club in the top ten of a world marathon major today. And GBTC topped itself at USA Cross Country Team Championships when it outscored the second place squad by 150 points. That was done without their ace, Bill Rogers. Instead, a team of Alberto Salazar, Hodge, Dan Dillon, Greg Meyer, Thomas, Pete Fitzinger, and Bruce Bickford dusted the competition. 
Now those men, their coach Billy Squires, and the rest of the Greater Boston Track Club looked forward to the Olympic trials in June 1980. It's doubtful Boston's top-distance runners feared for their athletic futures when Brezhnev sent Soviet troops into Afghanistan, nor did the rest of the world anticipate the global geopolitical dominoes soon to fall. Political scientists refer to the unintended consequences and unforeseen negative side effects of political and military operations as blowback. Misled by intelligence officers, Brezhnev believed he could invade Afghanistan and quickly reassert control. Instead, the USSR entered a decade-long quagmire, their version of the U.S. conflict in Vietnam. The stalemate helped unravel and eventually dissolve the Soviet Union and left roughly one in ten Afghan citizens dead. Meanwhile, the United States backed the Mujahideen, or Holy Warriors, in opposition to the Soviet incursion. Weaponizing these Islamists was a classic move of Cold War statecraft, one that brought its own blowback. Elements of the Mujahideen later fought against the U.S. as members of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, drawing us into our own decade-plus war in Afghanistan. For the Greater Boston Track Club, the unintended consequences of the Soviet-Afghan War became apparent on April 12, 1980. That January, President Jimmy Carter endorsed a boycott of the 1980 Summer Olympic Games in Moscow as part of a sanctions response to the Soviet invasion. Public support for the boycott grew, and the House of Representatives and Senate overwhelmingly passed non-binding resolutions approving the boycott by margins of 386 to 12 and 88 to 4, respectively. The United States Olympic Committee followed suit, deferring to public opinion rather than the will of many of their athletes in the April 12 vote codifying the boycott. The GBT's stars and the other top U.S. distance runners lost their Olympic hopes in a cruel twist of international relations. Moscow now erased from the athletics calendar. All eyes turned to the next quadrennial cycle and the road to Los Angeles, 1984. Among Greater Boston's top men, Bill Rogers felt the brunt of the boycott. He was near peak form as the new decade dawned. After a disappointing, injury-hampered 40th place finish at the 76 Montreal Games, he bounced back in style, winning four straight New York marathons from 76 through 79 and a Boston three-peat in 78, 79, and 80. Rogers ended the 70s as the world's top marathoner, according to track and field news. Boston Billy devoured miles on his road to the top. His autobiography, Marathon Man, is filled with anecdotes like midnight refrigerator raids for spoonfuls of mayonnaise and the quest to consume enough calories for his blue-collar training. Leading up to his first Boston win, Rogers regularly logged between 140 and 150 miles per week and even reached as high as 180. In January, he went on an incredible mileage tear. The Beverly Indoor Invite 2-mile kicked off the new year on the 2nd. Rogers placed 3rd in 9.04. It was a solid but mildly pedestrian effort by his standards. Later that year, he ran over 10 seconds faster for the same distance. But Beverly sparked a stretch of 263 miles in 10 days. On the 3rd, he went for 23 miles over hills. That Saturday, it was 14 miles in the morning featuring three-by-mile track reps and a 16-mile double. 
Rogers went back to the hills for 20 miles the next day and a 10-mile second run. From the 6th through the 10th, he ran four consecutive days of doubles with 16 miles in the morning and at least 13 miles in the afternoon. Then Rogers allowed himself a relaxed Friday, only one run, 13 miles around Jamaica Pond. Bill closed the week capitalizing on unusually warm weather. On Saturday, 10 easy morning miles proceeded 10 miles hard at 3.30 p.m. And on Sunday, he went for a 24-mile long run and a six-mile evening double. Fast forward three months to a chilly Patriots day with a light tailwind. Attired in a fresh pair of Nikes straight from Steve Prefontaine and white cotton gardening gloves purchased at a hardware store that morning, Rogers raced to victory and became the first American under two hours, ten minutes. Bill Rogers had taken the American marathoning mantle from Frank Shorter, and only defending Olympic champ Waldemar Scherpinski, who was later implicated in the East German systematic doping scheme, held as much claim to favorite status for Moscow 1980. Perhaps only world cross-country champ and premier U.S. 10,000 meters man Craig Virgin suffered a similarly unfortunate fate as Rogers in 1980. They were at the intersection of their running primes and an Olympic boycott. The challenge for Rogers was maintaining that shape, with wins at Toronto, Houston, and Melbourne, and several Boston top five finishes in the subsequent years. It seemed Rogers still had a shot as he prepped for Boston 1983. Rogers' teammate Greg Meyer had his Olympic track dreams dashed in 1980, but used that time as a launching pad for his marathon career. Raised in Grand Rapids, Meyer ran for the University of Michigan with the final three years of his career under the guidance of Ron Warhurst. A Vietnam vet and member of Western Michigan's back-to-back NCAA cross-country championship teams in the 60s, the young Warhurst ran with Meyer nearly every morning. Today we know Warhurst as the past or present coach of Alan Webb, Nick Willis, and Hobbs Kessler, an architect of a stinging track session so renowned it is simply dubbed the Michigan. Fifty years ago, Warhurst stepped onto campus in Ann Arbor and immediately transformed the Wolverines into a Big Ten cross-country power. His squad swept the 1974, 75, and 76 conference titles with Meyer as the star pupil. Although he couldn't overcome Craig Virgin of Illinois for an individual league title, Meyer garnered multiple All-America honors. Shortly after graduating, Meyer became the 87th American and first from Michigan to run a sub-four-minute mile. Around this time, entreaties from the Greater Boston Track Club began. After mulling over the move, Meyer caucused with Warhurst. Reflecting on their conversations in 2018, Meyer recalled that Warhurst urged him to join Bill Squire's team, learn what the greatest track club in the world was doing, and spread that knowledge back to Michigan. So Greg Meyer moved to New England, flushed with an $8,000 annual contract from New Balance and a new job working for Bill Rogers Running Center. The early months tested Meyer. 1978's 359 mile and AAU cross-country championship felt like the distant past as he struggled in Squire's highly aerobic system. The hard hills and track reps of the Warhurst era were Meyer's bread and butter. He felt flat off of high volume laden with tempo runs and threshold miles. But underneath the surface, an aerobic monster was blossoming. 
and Squires wasn't too proud to adapt his system to Meyer's strengths. Squires' confidant Bob Seveny tinkered with the program, and Meyer drew on Warhurst's wisdom as well. Ultimately, he turned a corner, and in Boston, a sharp, fit distance runner was destined for one race, the Boston Marathon. Squires sent Meyer home to Michigan for his 1980 marathon debut. Meyer considers this decision one of the sage subtleties that made Bill Squires a marathon coaching savant. At Detroit, Meyer got his first taste of the 26.2-mile distance. The lower-profile race freed him from time expectations and pacing concerns. He simply ran to win. Two hours, 13 minutes, and seven seconds after the starter's gun fired, Greg Meyer broke the tape as victor and course record holder. He was on to Boston, 1981. Nearly every age group marathoner sets out with a goal of qualifying for the Boston Marathon. Once qualified, the task turns to conquering Boston's unique course. No two words elicit more emotion and imagery among runners than Heartbreak Hill. We work uphills, prepping for heartbreak in the series of Newton ascents. We work downhills, hardening our quads for the opening drop out of Hopkinton the descent into Lower Newton Falls, and the final assault on Coolidge Corner and Kenmore Square. Despite the best-laid training plans, many first-timers find the Boston course has zapped their turnover by the closing miles. Bill Rogers experienced that helpless feeling at his first Boston in 1973, dropping out at the 20-mile mark. He was so devastated, he quit running for three months. His teammate Greg Meyer tasted the disappointment in 1981. It was a great learning experience, Meyer reflects. You learn that even though you think you're ready for Boston, and you're strong enough for Boston, and you've had success, winning Boston is a different beast. He ran one second slower than at Detroit the previous year for a disappointing 11th place finish. Taming the Boston beast necessitated two more years of building strength. By spring 1983, Meyer appeared ready for a shot at the laurel wreath. Building off a win at the 1982 Chicago Marathon, he embarked on a Boston cycle that blended quintessential Squires training and the custom of the era, heaps of racing. In January, he ran a road 10K best of 28-12. Three weekends later in Tampa, Meyer set a 15K American record at the Gasparilla Distance Classic. Even in record time, he finished second, outclassed by 1983 Rotterdam champ Rob DiCastella. On March 27th, Greg set a 10-mile world record at the Cherry Blossom in Washington, D.C. These race results suggested an eminent Boston breakthrough. In between competitions, he fought sickness and a groin strain, but stacked six consecutive weeks over 110 miles leading up to Patriots Day. Those weeks featured some of the classic Squires sessions GBTC athletes benefited from throughout their string of Boston Marathon successes. Quality long runs were the staple. Squires famously said, surging long runs put the tiger in the cat. Meyer's March and April long runs certainly brought out his inner tiger. According to his training log, these were his final six long runs. First, 21 plus miles over hills in two hours, nine minutes. Next, 21 miles averaging 523 per mile and including hard surges of between one and five minutes every six minutes. 
Meyer called that his best long run to date. The next Sunday, he traversed 20 miles steady over hills. Later, another long fartlek of 20 miles at 5.33 average pace and surges descending from 10 minutes to 1 minute capped a 135-mile week. Meyer's March 28th long run is possibly the grittiest effort one can imagine. He ran a 20-mile fartlek over the Boston course at a 5.40 average. At first blush, the time and distance appear normal, perhaps even unimpressive when compared to the previous long sessions. But the significance lies in the date. The prior day, Meyer ran his 10-mile world record in D.C., then traveled back to Boston. And several days later, he won the Colonial Relays Track 10K in a sharp time of 27 minutes, 53 seconds. He closed the prep with a last 20-miler on April 8th, running most of the course at 5.26 average and ending with a 4.40 track mile. Greg Meyer was primed for Boston 83. Unlike the Olympic implications of Leonid Brezhnev's foreign policy, the effect of John Tunis's writing on the 1928 Amsterdam Olympics was intended and predictable. He catered to an Olympic committee that believed women too frail to compete in endurance sport. Reporting on the women's 800-meter final, Tunis wrote, Below us on the cinder path were 11 wretched women, five of whom dropped out before the finish, while five collapsed after reaching the tape. While a harrowing image, it was altogether false. Women competed in Olympic track and field, known as athletics internationally and at the Summer Games, for the first time in 1928, 19th and early 20th century aristocratic mores of gallantry and the potential reproductive harm of extreme female exertion pervaded the ruling class of amateur sport. When finally allowed the opportunity to compete, women were offered five events, 100 meters, the 4x100 relay, discus, high jump, and 800 meters. The intensity of a women's 800-meter run drew scrutiny from International Olympic Committee members. They were eager to proliferate John Tunis's fabricated story. In fact, only nine women started the race, not the 11 he suggested. All nine finished the event. Lena Radke of Germany won in a world record time of 2 minutes 16.9 seconds, quite an admirable mark for nearly 100 years ago. The runners were explicably fatigued. Think of the competitors we've seen, regardless of sex, strewn about the track and infield after epic races. Yet none of these facts fit the IOC narrative. After the 1928 Amsterdam Games, women did not compete in events longer than 200 meters again until 1960, and the first women's Olympic marathon wasn't until Los Angeles, 1984. Women raced at Boston more than a decade earlier, but not without incident. In 1966, Bobby Gibb leapt from the Hopkinton sidelines and banded the Boston Marathon. In 1967, Catherine Schweitzer registered simply as K.V. Schweitzer and became the first woman to complete the course with a race number. At the nadir of the opening downhill miles near Ashland, race director Jock Semple confronted Schweitzer trying to take her number 261 and remove her from the course. Schweitzer's boyfriend Tom Miller and nearby male runners interceded. Shaken but unbroken, Schweitzer ran to the finish. She defeated both Semple and Mother Nature. Snow squalls blanketed Boston 67. 
Five years later, Boston formally permitted female entrance. Fittingly, as excitement for the inaugural women's Olympic marathon grew, a native New Englander took center stage. Joan Benoit of Maine shared a multi-sport background with many of the region's great runners. She spent her winters skiing and first found success in the slalom. Distance running was a secondary pursuit, one rooted in cross-training as Joan recovered from ski racing injuries. She first attended Bowdoin College and played field hockey. Cross-country wasn't yet an option at her school in the early days post-Title IX. After her sophomore year, Joan transferred to pursue her running career. She chose North Carolina State over Powerhouse, Oregon. There, Benoit's distance prowess proved exceptional. An All-America college cross-country career ensued, and before graduating, she captured the 1979 Boston Marathon. Nondescript in a Boston Red Sox cap and relatively unknown at the time, she beat the standing course record by eight minutes. In an era before buses shuttling thousands of runners to the start line, Benoit started from the back of the pack not out of pacing intentionality, but because she was late thanks to pre-race traffic. She dashed two miles through Hopkinton just to make the race. Joan hadn't studied the course map pre-race, and even asked a male competitor when they would hit heartbreak in the big hills. He responded, Lady, you just passed them. Unlike Bill Rogers, Greg Meyer, and most other mortals, Benoit's first Boston ended crowned with the laurel wreath. Joan Benoit described her training as by the seat of her pants, rooted in gut instinct and heart. But at the peak of her marathon career, each week included three key specific sessions. A 20-mile long run, track reps or a road race, and a 12 to 16-mile up-tempo medium long run. The key workouts began three months before a target marathon. In between, she simply listened to her body, running the pace that felt right for the day. In a 2021 interview, Joan said modern running technology like GPS watches can be useful, but also the tool of the devil. Compared to Rogers and Meyer, Benoit excelled on relatively moderate mileage. She rarely went to 100 miles a week, but did frequently employ both a morning and afternoon session. After Achilles tendon surgery in December 1981, Benoit bounced back with an American record in September, running 2.26.11. She entered Boston 83 as the co-favorite with Kiwi sensation Allison Rowe. Rowe won both Boston and New York in 1981. Her world record set at New York suffered the same unfortunate fate as Alberto Salazar's time that day when it was retroactively nullified. The stakes for the Benoit Rowe showdown were raised on Patriots Day Eve. Norwegian phenom Greta Weitz set a new world record mark in London, 225.29. Every few years, the weather at Boston presents ideal conditions for attacking fast times. The course profile, point to point, with a net downhill, yields hope. But spring's unpredictability and the torturous timing of Newton's hills often dash that hope. Today's marathoners wistfully recall 2011, aided by 50-degree temps, and a west-southwest breeze up to 20 miles per hour, Ryan Hall darted out on record pace. Despite fading down the stretch, Hall ran the fastest marathon ever by an American, and Jeffrey Mutai's 203-02 course record from 2011 still stands. In 1983, Boston still ended with its traditional stew and began at noon. Fortunately for the field, 
That customary late start time brought with it a light tailwind, a few passing sprinkles, and a cool high in the 40s. The men's race broke hard out of Hopkinton. Greg Meyer went toward the front early. Now sponsored by Brooks, Meyer wore blue shorts, a white top with his brand's name emblazoned across the chest, and bib number three. Bearded, with his hairline receding, Meyer's 5'9", 145-pound frame looked powerful compared to the rest of the front pack. Coach Bill Squires had implored him to take command of the field and inject surges any time the pace slowed. However, Meyer didn't need to exercise the strategy for long. The Atlanta Track Club's Benji Durden asserted himself and pressed the middle miles. Durden finished second at the 1980 Olympic Trials Marathon in Buffalo, running 26 sub-five-minute miles for 210.40. The boycott shattered his Moscow Marathon dreams, and he felt deserving of favorite status for the U.S. team at LA 84. Before descending into Lower Newton Falls, the leaders accelerated. The move, hastened by Durden, whittled down the lead pack. Among the casualties, elder statesman Bill Rogers. A race week cold hampered Rogers. He went from feeling strong in Wellesley to watching the top men pull away. Referring to the mid-race surge and his lack of counterpunch, Rogers told the New York Times, it seems to happen more and more. They don't come back. In a sign of the Boston Marathon's significance at the height of the running boom, the Times article about the race shared the front page with a report of the horror of the U.S. Embassy bombing in Beirut, which left scores dead. Meanwhile, Joan Benoit was punishing the first half of Boston's fabled course. She ran the opening 10K just seconds off her American record time for that distance. The crowd roared its approval. Commentators speculated she would implode later in the hills. At 8 miles, Benoit was on nearly 2.16 marathon pace after running a shocking 5.09 mile. Made aware of her clip, Benoit eased back, but still crossed 10 miles in the half marathon point in American record times. Embedded in a pack of male runners that slowly dwindled to two, the same number as her race bib, Benoit looked at ease even when a side stitch hit her in Wellesley. Her co-coach and advisor Bob Seventy had moved west to Oregon. As such, Benoit wore the famed red Athletics West kit, just like Alberto Salazar did a year earlier in his historic duel with Dick Beardsley. By early afternoon, Benoit looked like the best and maybe only hope for Massachusetts. The Milwaukee Brewers were battering Red Sox pitching at Fenway on their way to a 14-0 victory. Bill Rogers had slipped into no man's land, and Benji Durden opened a gap on Greg Meyer. Entering the Newton Hills, Greg Meyer lagged behind Benji Durden by 12 seconds. Internally, Meyer scoffed at Durden's audacity. How could the Atlantan be so brazen on Meyer's home course? Didn't Durden realize the rugged topography would break him? Coach Squires designed Tiger in the cat surging long runs for moments like this. Rogers, Beardsley, Salazar, they had all made definitive moves through the hills. And now it was Meyer's turn. But Benji Darden trained with his own Boston simulator long run. A five-mile warm-up to the local high school track in Stone Mountain, Georgia, followed by alternating reps of 1K hard and 2K hard with 200-meter recoveries. He ran those until he hit the 10K mark on the track. For this portion of the session, Durden tallied 29 minutes and 10 seconds. Next, he transitioned to the roads for 15 minutes easy, then 5 miles at marathon pace over a hilly course. With the cooldown, 
Durden's version of the tiger and the cat lasted 21 miles. He executed this workout 11 days out from Boston as a final tune-up before the taper and big dance. Those same Atlanta hills served Dick Beardsley well during his winter block before Boston 1982. Durden believed he had the recipe for victory. For all the hill charges and undulating long runs, Boston 83 might have been settled by a blister. Moving through the Newton Hills, Durden suffered a debilitating blister on his right foot. Hoping to mitigate the damage, he altered his mechanics on the downhills. But Durden's adjustment irritated his hamstrings. By the time Durden and Meyer crested Heartbreak Hill, Greg Meyer held a commanding 16-second lead. Decades later, Meyer recalled running scared beyond heartbreak out of fear the great Bill Rogers might catch him at any moment. Rogers faded and eventually crossed the line in 10th, his lowest Boston finish since a DNF in 1977. No one ran hills better than Meyer, and his victory seems entirely likely even if Durden stayed at 100%. It's less likely Eugene Oregon's Ron Tab would have passed Durden for second. Tab was the bridesmaid at the 80 trials missing the podium by one place. Remarkably consistent throughout the years, Tab's second place at Boston 83 stamped him as a major threat for LA 84. Down the stretch, there was little question the race belonged to Meyer. Spectators spilled onto the course, encouraging their local hero. Clear of the field by over 30 seconds, Greg Meyer split the tape at precisely two hours and nine minutes. He was the first man ever to run a sub-four-minute mile and a marathon below two hours, ten minutes. No other contender for LA 84 had the range of Greg Meyer. Meyer's astonishing exhibition moved to the background within 15 minutes. Allison Rowe dropped from the women's race at mile 17, and it became a one-woman show. Greta Weitz's new world record lasted only one day. Joan Benoit didn't just break the record, she crushed it. Running 2:22:42. It was a new world best by almost three minutes. In awe, Coach Squires exclaimed, What Joni's done is to prove a woman's body build is ideal for running. John Tunis, also a Bostonian, had passed eight years earlier. One wishes he might have lived long enough to read the pro-Benoit press and compare it to his own work at the 1928 Amsterdam Games. Boston 83 served as the U.S. qualifier for the marathon at the first track and field world championships that summer in Helsinki. Both Greg Meyer and Joan Benoit declined their invitation. Neither realized how important the new world champs would become. Even without Meyer and Benoit, the 83 Helsinki World Champs Marathon provided plenty of drama and excitement. We'll tell the story of Helsinki 83 in a future installment of The Road to LA 84. But before that will examine America's remarkable marathoning depth 40 years ago and the tireless training methods of Japan's distance stars on the road to LA 84, right here on Seconds Flat. <laughs>